The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Sequel Quest, Episode 115, a sequel to Adam Sandler's The Wedding Singer. Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic journey to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way. Sequel Quest is go for long, so let the adventure begin now. Off to a great start, don't you think? I mean, you listeners showed up, so right away we've got to be pretty psyched, right? Hey, buddy, we didn't download this show to hear your thoughts on life. Well, we have a microphone, and you don't. So you will listen to every dumb movie sequel idea we have to pitch. Here's a little mood music. Jeff, Jeremy, and Adam are podcasted. Whoopity-doo! On WTF, that stream, how did this get made? We just can't win. And so it goes till your phone's out of space. This thing called podcasting, we're losing the race. Make it up, make movies, yeah, you know we're the best. But is anybody listening to? Sequel Quest? Sequel Quest! Yeah, yeah! Sequel Quest? Sequel Quest! Listen! And there you go. Hey, everybody. Happy wedding day to you all. Let's introduce you to our wedding party here. Currently puking into a dumpster out back. It's Jeff. Yeah, yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> And currently running the obstacle course in his limousine, but he only hit two cones. It's Jeremy. They were cones! <laughs> Very nice. And master ceremonies tonight. Looking a little bit depressed, living in my sister's basement. I'm Adam. And here we are. Jeremy, tell him what movie we're talking about. Well, if you couldn't get any of the references, uh, they were mighty obscure, but let's just say it was... The Wedding Singer, starring Adam Sandler, Drew Barrymore, Alan Covert, Christine Taylor, Matthew Glave, and Billy Idol, directed by Frank Coracci. He directed a lot of Adam Sandler movies after this, I'll tell you that much. Maybe with good reason. We'll find out tonight as we discuss The Wedding Singer, certainly among the handful of good Adam Sandler movies <laughs> in retrospect now as we look back on his career. But I think that's an important place to start because Adam Sandler got into movies. He was a name of sorts before he became a cinema icon. So I'm curious for you, Jeff, where did you get introduced to Adam Sandler? Well, I mean, I knew about him on Saturday Night Live, but like when he was 
really on Saturday Night Live. I feel like like I wasn't quite old enough to watch him. Uh, like so, I, I watched a lot of like reruns of them on Saturday Night Live. So I feel like I got exposed to him through Billy Madison. We watched that over and over and over again. And then at around about that same time, they were showing reruns of Saturday Night Live on on Comedy Central. So I kind of did both of those at the same time. How about you, Jeremy? Was Adam Sandler always movies to you? Did you catch him uh, on the TV ever? Pretty sure it was just mm-hmm. some combination of Happy Gilmore and Billy Madison that mm-hmm. I, I remembered him from and then got into more of the, oh, he was on SNL, okay, and best of Adam Sandler type stuff going on that I watched a bunch of, so... Yeah, I mean, like like Jeff said, I mean, when we were watching Saturday Night Live together, it was definitely the new class. It was the Will Ferrell, the Sherry O'Terry, the Molly Shannon, our Jim Brewer. Those are the three that you <laughs> Sherry no, O'Terry? And Norm. Norm McDonald, of course. We love That's our Norm. typical Adam. <laughs> Poor Sherry. Just give her more work, people. But yeah, but for me, actually, I got introduced to Adam Sandler through his comedy albums. I remember in eighth grade, my friend Brett had the What the Hell Happened to Me comedy album because you had the Hanukkah song that was playing on the radio nonstop. And he had another song that had just a bunch of curse words in it that were constantly being bleeped out by car hordes his piece of s car (laughs) but they played it on the radio all the time like it was one of the last times i feel like a novelty record was in the general play there i loved the goat and i loved you know so many different performances on that album i went and got the they're all gonna laugh at you album which is his first comedy album and it's okay like it's pretty good it's got the the thanksgiving song all his holiday songs very popular it's got the severe beating of a high school janitor or spanish teacher or what have you it's a running gag he did have albums after that and i just never wanted to collect him i i heard a few tracks or he did one that was all singing and i was like eh and then he did put out an album later called stan and judy's kid that really only has one good skit on it and that's called whitey and is this guy who talks like this? It's like a 15-minute skit where this guy is at a mall annoying people and getting hassled by kids because he's a youth basketball coach and all this stuff. It just, yeah. It's got so many levels to it. And he even put that character eventually in his Eight Crazy Nights movie, his animated holiday film, but did not capture the same magic. So speaking of his movies then, because it sounds like that's where most of us ultimately locked in. Jeff, do you have a favorite film? that you stand by and say you know what adam sandler is funny and here's the proof oh well if you put it in those terms let me answer your question in two different answers is that one if you want to say my favorite adam sandler movie or like my favorite movie that adam sandler stars in it would be 50 first dates Uh, but as far as my movie that i would say this is proof that adam sandler is funny the funniest movie i would say billy madison And when we're talking Adam Sandler, there are different eras of Adam Sandler Mm. uh, because there's the early immature humor that Mm -hmm. runs through Happy Gilmore, Billy Madison, Little Nicky, Waterboy. Like there's that whole era there. And then things kind of went off the rail for him. He had a slew of movies that were just like, eh, Mr. Deeds? Who wants Mr. Yeah, Deeds? Mr. Deeds. You know? Hey, I, I watched that one quite a bit, but it's not <laughs> on my list. But then he kind of had a rebirth. He tried to go super dramatic with like Spanglish, those type of movies. And then things hit rock bottom with Jack and Jill. 
Because <laughs> he won the Razzie that year, didn't he? Worst I, movie sure, and yeah. worst performance, I he believe. He should have won both of them, yeah. Well, but see, but that's the challenge, like, with his serious stuff is that, and I haven't watched most of them, but from what I understand, like, Spanglish and Punch Drunk Love got really, really good reviews. They're not comedies, per se, but right. or at least not his typical comedies. Yeah, um, Spanglish but, yeah. is a good movie, and his right. performance in it is very likable, but that's all he had to be. Like, it's not, right. it's it's got right. some drama to it, but it's not a super heavy performance in any way. He's just, oh, he's oh, the okay. nice guy, and his wife is cheating on him. Well, so apparently the, the analogy I was trying to make uh, doesn't work. Um, because <laughs> that, he got, that he matured, and then, because well, I think he regressed. Like, okay, so, uh, kind of. Because I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry happened. Oh, yeah. Click, that was an up for him. Don't mess with the Zohan. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, no. Don't mess with the no. Zohan. It was, no it was very hit or miss. Bedtime stories. That's Disney. not bad. That's true. That, that one that was, okay. that was probably one of his better overall movies, but that came out in 2008. Jack and Jill came out in 2011. So I was, I thought it was Jack and Jill and then bedtime stories, but apparently he didn't learn his lesson. Well, because it feels like he got, he got into the Netflix era and that's where we really. Yeah. That's where we kind of get to now where he, he was kind of able to do whatever they signed into a four or five picture deal and said, oh. you make it, we'll play it. And he started that off with Ridiculous Six. Now, The Cobbler is not bad as far oh, as a yes, dramatic film. Yes. That, that's one that just kind of appeared and you're like, huh? But it's basically yes. like literally taking what if you could walk in somebody else's shoes, but in this case you transform into the person. Into so you have yeah. to live their life for however long you're wearing their shoes. Huh. It's got a nice idea behind it and it's well handled, I feel like. It's not as ridiculous as yes. it could be. Yeah. Murder Mystery with Jennifer Aniston. That was one of his newer netflix ones that one was really good surprisingly i mean where, where i fall with sandler is you know because we mentioned i feel like you know you have billy madison happy gilmore and the wedding singer that those are the ultimate adam sandler films that work and are rewatchable and all of those things the rest like you say is kind of like well maybe i'll check in here maybe i'll check in there but honestly for me if the happy madison logo comes up I do not want to watch it. You know, if really? I know that Adam Sandler produced this movie, I am not interested because he has no filter then. He can do whatever he wants and it's crap. A few of the movies he's produced he's not in, I don't mind, like Benchwarmers. That's an right. okay movie. That's that's a, you know, just a dumb film, but Rob Schneider's pretty good in that. Because I've never seen Grandma's Boy. I always hear it's a very funny movie, but also super raunchy, so it's not my cup of tea. The Grown Ups movies, again, no interest there, but... The Hotel Transylvania films, very popular and actually well executed. Because he's got the restraint of having to make a film that's family friendly, he can't go too far like he always does. Right. <laughs> or or go right. too inside baseball for him, like the movie Sandy Wexler. I watched about 45 minutes of that. It's about like this schlubby agent in Hollywood that I'm sure is based on somebody he knows and he has a bunch of celebrity cameos, but you just watch it and you're like, I don't connect to this. I have a hard time because he was my hero for those first three films. Like I saw Billy Madison three times in the theater, probably because of Bridget Wilson the second two times, <laughs> but <laughs> I actually took a camera into the theater and took a picture of the screen to have a photo of her. Happy Gilmore, I bought a hockey jersey so that I could dress like Adam Sandler. And I kept it for years and years. Just had to throw it away recently because it was falling apart. But <laughs> I had that. And then 
the wedding singer Jeff, our group of friends, went back to the theater multiple times to see that. I don't know if you remember it, but I remember going with Dave and everybody else, and Justin, and just being in the theater. Let's go see Wedding Singer again. Like, we love that movie. You sure that was me? (laughs) It was the group. Maybe you didn't want to spend the money. (laughs) Notoriously thrifty Jeff. But here's the thing. So here's the real question, though, because we've gone through a bunch of films, but is there a specific moment for you where you said, I'm doubting his comedic abilities now? Was there a specific film you sat in the theater, you rented it, and said, oh, no? Well, I'm interested, too, just to kind of back up a second, like, because... For you, Adam, in particular, because like your style of comedy that you appreciate and you kind of mentioned it already, you don't seem to appreciate, not that I say that you should, but you don't seem to appreciate like the South Park style of humor. Right. That's not really your thing. And the interesting thing is that's what I noticed from like his his album. That is Adam Sandler's style of humor. Like Billy Madison and those things, those are way tamer than I think his default or at least he was as a stand-up comic. Mm-hmm. And so it is kind of interesting that it's like, yeah, what what is his target audience? So the same thing to say, like, well, the, the Seth MacFarlane movie that I like the most is the family-friendly one. Well, it's like, well, that's not Seth MacFarlane. Like, that's not his yeah. style. Well, I think humor. he is, like, college kids. I mean, he went on college concert tours. Yeah. I remember my dad, his company owned the Anaheim Hilton, and we didn't have cable that had HBO, but he was going to have an HBO special. So I asked my dad to rent me a room in the hotel so I could go on the TV and watch Adam Sandler's <laughs> HBO special. <laughs> you know? Like, that's how devoted I was, but it was totally for a college crowd, you know? And, like, even though his albums were raunchy, it was the character work and, like, the writing Mm. that would draw me in and I would kind of look past the language or whatever else because I was just like, ah, but it's clever. And then it stopped being clever and it just started being overtly stupid and crass. Because I think, and that was my opinion, I remember back as a high schooler, is that Adam Sandler would swear because he believed, or his audience believed, that swearing is funny. He would say, (laughs) I've got a piece of blink car, and people would laugh that he used that word. And for me, I don't find that humor funny, but I think that was the crux of that kind of comedy. So, like, again, it was difficult for me to appreciate that kind of comedy. So it is it is kind of peculiar, I think, to, to kind of, like, judge him based on our own preferences. Because I, I would agree, like, with what you were saying, Jeremy, I feel like Adam Sandler, we've seen him go through at least three different phases. Because, like you said, Adam, like, that early phase where it was, I have a feeling he wanted to make that style of humor, but no one was buying it back then. You couldn't make an R-rated comedy back in the 90s. Like, that just wasn't happening. Because th- th- it was the Jim Carrey era. They wanted wacky. And that yeah, was I mean, it wasn't until the later 90s with There's Something About Mary that really kicked off, like, the R-rated comedy, yeah. Right, right, right. So for me, it almost maybe, maybe it'd be more interesting to kind of, like, which phase of his do you most appreciate? Because for me, if you would have told me after hearing that first album in the 90s that that guy was going to be in serious contention for an Oscar after doing uncut gems, like if you would have told me that guy would be like a serious player, I no way. No, who would ever take him seriously? The fact that he has done that, and the same thing, like again, he did Punch Drunk Love and he got rave reviews for that. There was a bunch of different things that he's done to show his versatility, which (laughs) really surprises me that he has that in him. 
Well, and I applaud his business sense because obviously they keep buying it. I mean, he keeps selling it and they keep buying it and he's doing fine. I mean, he did that concert (laughs) tour recently to kind of reclaim his comedy cred, though. You know, he went around and said, okay, I'm on stage with an accompanist and I do funny songs and I do some jokes. I do some stand up like I did back in the day. Like he's trying to find his old fire. It seems like he's trying to come back to okay, I realize that what I've done is indulgent and people are a little bit put off by it. You know, even something like Pixels, which should have been like a slam dunk for somebody like me who loves retro video (laughs) games and everything else. I was just like, just the way that movie is even shot, Adam Sandler looks terrible in that movie. And he is in no way endearing anymore he's not the cute young guy you know who's got a spark in his eye now he's just like this old kind of grizzled you know middle-aged guy and he just doesn't have the same energy that he had back in the day but like for me where i started getting concerned was little nicky because i was an extra in that film jeff you had already you had already graduated but our drama teacher from high school set up a field trip where there was a filming in Long Beach at the Pyramid, which is this big sports center out there, and they were filming a basketball scene from that movie. And it's not like a big part of the movie, really, but it's like everybody was there because Dana Carvey was playing basically Whitey, the referee, and he gets possessed by Adam Sandler's brothers and is making the game go wrong with his bad calls. But at the end of it, like, it was a big deal because... John Lovitz came out and Kevin Nealon came out and Adam Sandler came out and they're all waving to us and we're all cheering them on, you know? So we were so excited about this movie. I was actually already almost in a shot, but then they came up and they're like, wait, are you one of the paid extras? Okay, you got to move out of the shot. And I was like, oh, man. But then I saw the movie and I was grateful because I was like, this is so (laughs) bad. Like I said, I love the characters and the characterization. Like that's the worst and most annoying character trait you could choose. And so I was just hugely disappointed. And after that, I just, I saw 51st States and loved it. But that became the exception rather than the rule for me. But I think the high point for him, especially in those early days, was The Wedding Singer. So I'm curious for you guys, what do you think makes The Wedding Singer so memorable? I don't know. Like, was it his first real attempt at being somewhat dramatic? Oh, definitely. I think that's a big part of it, right? Is that it still has the same ridiculousness as far as characters, and it's got a little bit of raunch to it. I mean, the movie's very butt-obsessed. Everybody's grabbing butts all over this film. Talking about butts, I mean, it was the 90s. (laughs) But the emotional moments really work. And partly that is the Sandler-Drew Barrymore chemistry, but also I think they allow it to play in the film. They don't ruin the feeling with like a raunchy joke right after the fact. Like those moments, like when they kiss for the first time, you're just like, oh, there's some magic here. Or just the idea of them being heartbroken. I mean, when he walks up to the window and he sees her being so happy and doesn't know she's pretending to be married to him and not Glenn, and it just breaks your heart. Like you see it, it's like they were so close close they could have had their moment then and they lose it you know it's like so i think it's just well written and well performed in those moments which i think gets lost later on like he gets worried about oh it's not funny now i I gotta go back to this thing it's either all dramatic or all humor and he here i think he straddles the line really well what about you jeff for me i don't actually enjoy the wedding singer it's not one of my favorite ones i feel like it doesn't quite know what it wants to be and i think you guys are right part of it is that kind of dramatic turn so to speak even though it is still a comedy 
But I think it's also the, the, the fact that like one of the things that makes Adam Sandler so special, and I mean that's what his thing was on Saturday Night Live, is singing, is doing these songs. Like he's a, a good singer and a good songwriter, and he, he makes catchy tunes with lyrics that people enjoy and that are funny. His movies don't really give him a chance to shine in that way, typically. But this one does. Didn't he write... Um, I Want to Grow Old with You. Uh-huh. Which is a very Adam Sandler sounding it is. song. Yeah, it's silly, and yet it's also heartfelt, so it, mm-hmm. it catches you on both sides for sure. I mean, I guess I feel like that's very true in that on SNL, the skits he was in were never memorable, except for, I would say, like, you know, on the best of Adam Sandler, the Denise show, which was when Shannon Doherty hosted, and he's, like, the boyfriend who she dumped, and he's got a public access show where he's just, this the Denise show, Denise, have you seen her? Have you talked to her? Let's go to the phones. You know, like, like that's a funny premise. Or the Hurley-he boy, where, you know, he's like, please let me move in with you. But even that is not funny because of him. That's funny because of Chris Farley. And let the boy move in with you. <laughs> yeah, and Adam Sandler could barely keep it together, too. That's, yeah, his yeah. reaction. Well, and, they, and every holiday, they had him break out his guitar for some song for the holiday. One of his songs that sticks out, well, there's two of them, and they both involve Chris Farley. If I'm thinking of Adam Sandler, it's Lunch Ladyland. Lunch sure. Ladyland? It's an earworm. I, I can't get rid of it. The other one is his Chris Farley tribute that he did when he returned to SNL here recently. I have mixed feelings about that. Uh, really? That particular performance, because I know they were good friends, and I know it was probably from the heart. I feel that there's an insincerity there. Like He's like, if I put this out, people will respect me. I can pull them in at the end. If they like nothing else, they'll like my Farley song. And I, it's, just, it's, it's a hard one for me because I'm such a huge Chris Farley fan as well. It feels a little bit exploitative rather than a true tribute. But that's my cynicism. I mean, I can see that. And I don't know if that version was any better than the one that he did on SNL, but there was some sincerity in it. Yes, it was exploitative, but... Anyway, but you like it when he sings. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, well, that's good. But I I think a lot of the credit also has to go to Drew Barrymore, because she is adorable in this movie. I mean, she gives the movie just as much heart as Adam Sandler does. It's just as much her movie as his movie, I feel. That she's written as a perfect partner to Robbie, not just this adoring girl that has a crush out of her, will they, won't they? Like, I feel like they work so well together when they have their back and forth scenes, like when they're at the photographer, you know, they say, oh no, we're brother and sister, you know, they're messing around with each other. Like, that's how you know. Like, when you're so comfortable with somebody, that you could have those jokes when they're picking on sammy you know, it was like oh yeah you said you were gonna give it to her give me what exactly you know like they they're just so on the same page and i think that works you know to endear us to both of them and root for their relationship all the more and i that's why i think again in 51st states a very different character for her and a very different time in drew barrymore's career but i still think they work well together in that respect they did a third movie i haven't seen that one yet but i'm sure it's better than most everything else But I think the other thing, too, the 80s throwback element, I think, is unique for the 90s as well. Yeah. Like, that wasn't happening all the time. It came out in 98. It was 13 years after when they were setting it in 1985. But I just feel like that was not something you were seeing celebrated as much. The playlist is amazing. Also, Billy Idol, you know, as far as celebrity cameos go, it's the perfect cameo. (laughs) Like, it's integrated seamlessly into the story. He's very funny, but it works. Like, it makes sense for what they're doing. 
But do you guys have a favorite moment that just cracks you up, speaking of the funny? Well, it's a spoiler then for my sequel. John Lovitz. John Lovitz, in, I think he has one minute and 40 seconds of screen time, steals the show for me. He's the thing that I remember about this movie was John Lovitz. He's losing his mind. And I'm reaping the benefits. <laughs> good luck finding so a DJ who can move and shake like this. Oh, he's so good. <laughs> How about you, Jeremy? Is there a character or a line that just makes you chuckle? The end scene where they're figuring it out on the plane, that's a real strong moment. But I don't really have anything else that sticks out and jumps out gag wise for me i think it's just it's the meat cute between adam sandler and drew barrymore out in the back of the dance hall but you know after he helps that kid and then he's like i don't think anyone can puke more than that kid i think i saw a boot come out of him <laughs> that's just great because it's so evocative and if you know everybody knows all your cartoon imagery you throw up in a cartoon a boot comes out with the bones and everything else <laughs> I think another strong point also, praise, you know, where praise is due, to Glenn Gulia as an all-time classic movie jerk. I think he gets it, and he's given us the performance that just puts us even more on Robbie and Julia's side. Where do you think he ranks? Is he up there with Shooter McGavin? <laughs> well, it's a different kind of movie. I mean, that's the challenge. And I mean, it's, it's part of just like the trope or, or the formula where it's the bad boyfriend that you don't want her to be with. And so that, you know, you go with the other one. So his level of like, I don't know. I mean, like the one thing I will definitely say is that no one, I don't think anyone is rooting for him. Like he universally has that going. But the challenge is like, I don't know. Do we really say like, oh, but I can see what she sees in him. Like, that that's my only struggle with him. Mm. Well, I guess what I feel like is the way he plays it, because he's not, like, super overt, he's really just, like, a low-key, casual jerk, super mm. selfish, super everything, and he's just, like, he is kind of smooth, so you could see, oh, well, you know, he brings her roses, you know, he does these things that are in the guise of being for her, but they're really just to cover his tracks, you know, so I feel like he's good at playing the role, so you could see where she could be deceived, and I think there's an age gap there he's probably a little bit older than her mm. and so you see like oh you know she's she's young and naive i i never think he overplays it and that's why i think he is an mvp mm. in the movie whereas yeah shooter mcgavin is like mm -hmm. over the top but that movie <laughs> right. is over the top so it works you know this is shooter's turn hey piece of crap like you for breakfast but yeah it, interestingly enough christopher mcdonald who played shooter mcgavin was up for the glenn gulia role I think it's better he didn't make it, though. You don't need, you don't want to repeat your bad guys. you got to have a new right. bad guy, mostly new girlfriend every movie. That's how the Adam Sandler formula works. <laughs> I seriously thought they'd done more movies together, but it's just the three, and they it's like every ten years they do them. So what, we got another four years, and then another one will come out? <laughs> the other one. Now, it is the only Adam Sandler movie that has been adapted into a Broadway musical. <laughs> So wow. that's saying something, you know? <laughs> so there's a, you know, in 2006, they, they put it out on Broadway. It went on tour internationally. So I listened to the soundtrack and I've watched the 
they don't have the actual, you know, Broadway production on YouTube, but there are several very high budget high school productions that you're just like, wow, yeah. this might as well be Broadway because they have all the sets, they have all the costumes, the kids are good. And it's, it's a very, it, it follows the same story. But the thing that doesn't work for me is this movie, the soundtrack is so important and they didn't mm. license it. It's not like Mamma Mia or anything like that. Like, they didn't take the songs from the movie and put them in this. Like, the original songs are there, but everything else is all brand new for this show. So it's basically just them singing about the actions of the movie. And so it, it doesn't quite play for me as well. It, I mean, it's it's got some funny parts, and they instead of Billy Idol at the end, he just has a group of impersonators that he meets in Las Vegas. You know, so you have like a Tina Turner, and you have a Mr. T, and you have you know, like all these characters <laughs> that are helping him out instead of Billy Idol, you know. So yeah, but it, it's an interesting concept, I guess, that you would uh, adapt it. But it seems like... Because, I mean, these are being produced in the last five years that multiple high schools are putting this show on. So it sounds like people might know this better as a musical than as a movie uh. in a couple of years. That might be the legacy of it all. Not the case of uh, vice versa for Cats, apparently, from what uh. I hear. Nobody will ever say, oh, that movie Cats. <laughs> yeah, we love that movie. <laughs> But yeah, so I think it's worth getting into it now and finding out what happens after 1985. So Jeff, you want to kick us off? Okay, so I have composed The Wedding Singer. So it's The is capitalized. So yes, I know it's the same title, but it's The Wedding Singer. So The Wedding Singer is going to start with a montage with Robbie getting his record deal, as we saw at the end of the movie. And because of that, Jimmy Moore becomes the king of wedding singers. Again, John Lovitz was Jimmy Moore, whose career tripled after Robbie had kind of bowed out. So Jimmy becomes the king of the wedding singers in his heyday. But then as the 80s come to an end, they're not really a big need for wedding singers. It's kind of the fad has faded away. So he starts doing like bar mitzvahs and quinceaneras. And eventually that fades away. He starts doing like kids' birthdays and reunions. He starts singing at like halftime at high school football games. And eventually he's down to just doing open mic nights. So eventually after this is done, he's he can't get a gig anywhere. So he ends up kind of questioning his career choices. He has to move back in with his mother. So now we're going to go into a flashback. And a flashback, he grows up in the hard streets of Manhattan. And all the other kids make fun of him because he's just too wealthy and he's too good looking. But he <laughs> dreams of running away to the good life which in his eyes is living in Hoboken, New Jersey. So he drops out of school and he goes to living on the street and he meets Felix, who's this really shady character who agrees to sell his vocal talents for money. So Jimmy starts using his voice for evil, like doing jingles to sell junk food, jingles that tell kids to skip school. He's one of the inventors of white rap music. Like he's very embarrassed about all of these things that they're using it for evil. And eventually he sees a wedding singer. And that's just kind of like his dream job of like, oh, someday, someday I could be a wedding singer. Then Felix ends up getting married and, uh, and brings Jimmy to the wedding. And the wedding singer during the wedding has a heart attack. 
So Jimmy has to jump in and fill in for the wedding singer and start singing. And the crowd is all in tears, which Jimmy thinks is because his singing is so powerful. But no, they're all sad because the singer has died. So he misconstrues this, but then he goes into his career, which then brings us back out of the flashback and back into the present. In the present, then he's just been sitting there reminiscing for who knows how long. So his mom forces him to get a job. And I kind of picture this actually like your career, Adam, where it seems like every job that you'd have, you would try and bring your characters and your creativity to it. So it's the same way he tries to bring his singing into everything he does. So he ends up getting a data entry job and he tries to sing all the time. So he gets fired and he, he ends up bringing like a grief counselor and he tries to sing his grief counseling. And so he gets fired and there's all this, this sort of a thing. He, he just can't do it. So finally, and now we're kind of in the 90s, so my idea is that the whole theme of this, because the last one obviously was in the 80s, so this is more 90s retro. Finally, through all of this, someone tells him about an opportunity to go on Star Search. And he, he, he initially is a little hesitant, but then eventually he jumps at the chance and goes on Star Search and sure enough, it goes as horribly as anything can go. The audience is laughing at him, and he he barely finishes his song before leaving in tears. And so as he's leaving, Agent approaches him, uh, wanting to sign him um, because he is so horrible. And he said that this was this will sell like hotcakes. And Jimmy refuses and says like, no, there's too much pride. But then the, the agent kind of convinces him that like, listen, man, you can still be a star and people want to hear you, not for the reasons that you want, but they still want to hear you. And so he ends up giving in and ends up becoming a huge star. Everybody's laughing at how bad he is, but he ends up owning it and kind of like, uh, what's his name from American Idol? William Hung. It's kind of that thing he ends up doing a record and he ends up going on tour and he's selling out places just because he's the worst singer anybody has ever heard but he finally has the stardom that he's always looked for the wedding singer <laughs> very nice very nice oh john lovitz so you know this is how i feel about it we are in the era where you know we're kind of at the tail end of the 80s flashback right i think it's about time we kicked off a 90s flashback boom so i bring you the wedding singer 2 only want to be with you Taking place 10 years after the original film, the world of 1995 is a very different place. We open on Robbie singing a version of All I Want to Do by Sheryl Crow at a wedding. After the song, he's approached by Steve Buscemi's David character, who thanks Robbie for coming out of retirement to play his reception. We then see that David is marrying supermodel Kathy Ireland, who thanks Robbie for inspiring David to get a new lease on life as a wedding singer himself, and that without the alcohol, he's a real demon in the sack. Which makes Robbie uncomfortable. Back home, while watching an episode of Family Matters and praising the comedic genius of Urkel, Robbie and Julia reveal that they have been unable to have children together, though they desperately want them. They agree to keep exploring their options. Julia works as a director of an after-school daycare to fill the void in her heart. Kids are always running around doing Beavis and Butthead impressions, getting in trouble for acting out Mortal Kombat fatalities, playing with Nickelodeon <laughs> Gax Live, and having koosh-ball fights. A running gag involves all the moms dropping off their kids having the Rachel hairstyle inspired by Jennifer Aniston's character on Friends with the added joke of Jennifer Aniston actually appearing in the movie as a frumpy daycare worker who criticizes the look as ridiculous. 
We learned that Robbie had a brief music career in the late 80s, writing songs for Billy Idol, but eventually became an executive at MTV's Los Angeles offices, where he has been navigating the grunge alternative music landscape in the 90s and creating new programming. He gets the credit for discovering Polly Shore, who makes a cameo where he's told to turn down a role in the upcoming Tom Cruise Mission Impossible film because that guy from Top Gun wants to be James Bond now? Trust me, you'll never see a sequel to that bomb. So mm-hmm. Polly opts to star in Biodome instead, being assured it's hip, it's now, we'll all be living in Biodomes in 20 years and people will never forget you. At one point, Robbie runs into his ex-fiancee, Linda, who has become an angry feminist singer-songwriter and penned a hit song called Men Must Die, Women Know Why. The music video features Linda gruesomely burning a male dummy in effigy that bears a striking resemblance to Robbie, but it's banned by the censors, so she presents her edited version where she bashes the crotch of the dummy with her guitar. Approved. In a meeting, Robbie pitches an idea for a singing contest where contestants compete for a record contract. But the head of programming, played by Simon Cowell, says audiences would never tune in to see a bunch of terrible singers crash and burn on stage. The public wants to worship talented people, not witness failure in prime time. The network seems to think he's outdated and his job is in jeopardy. Julia's cousin Holly is trendy as ever, recently getting a lip ring, nose ring, tongue stud, and three rings in her upper ear. Robbie makes a joke about Holly getting tangled up with any guy she makes out with that has similar head jewelry. And then, it happens. She's hooked to a guy named Kyle, played by Nick Swarsden, for the remainder of the film, and they eventually get married. Robbie's friend, Sammy, has gotten into extreme sports to try and hook up with younger, adventurous ladies. Robbie greenlights a show starring Sammy, jumping out of airplanes and barefoot water skiing to show the network he's still hip and he gets the youth demographic. Robbie and Julia go rollerblading together and over smoothies discuss if they are going to adopt a child. They continue their conversation while picking out movies at a blockbuster video store where a nosy employee played by Molly Shannon or Sherry O'Terry keeps interrupting (laughs) them (laughs) and offering her bizarre opinions on parenting. Robbie picks up a copy of Problem Child and says the kid could turn out to be a redheaded psycho but Julia picks up a copy of the music Annie and says they could get a red-headed sweetheart. Ultimately, Robbie and Julia decide to adopt. Back at work, the head of MTV, played by David Bowie, gets wind of Robbie's adoption plans and tells him they're going to have Robbie and Julia star in a real-world-style reality show in their home, where orphans compete to be their kid through elimination-style games mixed with the singing contest Robbie proposed. The couple are opposed to this. But when Julia's fired from the daycare, after a handful of children come down with mad cow disease from a field trip to Jack in the Box, and then Sammy's show is canceled when he ends up at a full body cast after attempting a skateboard jump down a ramp with a 100-foot drop, and his parachute deploys too early, they relent. The competing 13-year-old orphans represent the teen angst of the 90s with a goth boy who sings Smashing Pumpkins or Marilyn Manson tunes, a fashion-obsessed girl who wants to be a pop star like Mariah Carey but has an eating disorder, a goofball boy who does Jim Carrey impressions and raps like Vanilla Ice to cover his insecurity, a disaffected grunge rocker dude in flannel that's totally blasé about everything to the point of ridiculousness, and finally there's an introverted computer nerd girl named Sarah who creates tech no dance music. 
competition events like fanny pack fights where the kids fill fanny packs with various gross substances and fling the contents at each other, sagging pants relay races, and an intense pog tournament fill the days while the kids work on their musical acts at night. Robbie and Julia attempt to make the best of the situation, trying to help each kid deal with their various issues of abandonment while not playing favorites, which is exactly what the network wants to stir up the drama for the show. The couple do, however, take a particular interest in Sarah, who's the most introverted, but also the sweetest and possibly the most talented. She even helps the bulimic girl to get over her body issues. Meanwhile, the home is being invaded with production crew members, and a creepy cameraman played by David Spade is always hitting on Julia and denying it when confronted by Robbie. Chris Rock plays a writer who's brought in to coach the kids on snappy dialogue to make the show more interesting, but his brand of comedy is just stolen from Jerry Seinfeld. Meanwhile, the director played by Kevin Nealon is using psychological manipulation to turn the kids against each other, which Robbie confronts him on and puts an end to. When the final competition day arrives, the kids are in a frenzy, desperate to have a home. The show is connected to a TRL-style call-in line where the audience at home can vote for their favorites. Sadly, the kids end up sabotaging each other to win. Except for Sarah, who performs a techno rendition of Tomorrow from the musical Annie and blows everyone away. She wins by a landslide, but Robbie quits his job on air, stating that this show was wrong and that all of these kids deserve a loving family. Suddenly, the call lines light up with people offering to adopt each of the kids, with Robbie and Julia agreeing to bring Sarah into their home, and everyone lives happily ever after. But just when you think it's over... Hootie and the Blowfish randomly show up for the finale, and everyone takes turns singing lines from I Only Want to Be With You underneath the credits. So there you have it. The Wedding Singer 2, <laughs> Only Want to Be With You. Oh, boy. Do it, Jeremy. <clears throat> okay, so Robbie and Julia married, had three kids, and his wedding singing career dried up as the 90s hit their midpoint in 1995. DJs and CDs took over the scene rather than live wedding bands singing covers. The gigs grew sparse playing only a few a year, and Robbie had to get out and get a real job, and wound up bouncing from city to city along with his family, working classic rock and oldies radio stations. After 10 years of moving around, a local radio celebrity from the morning oldies station died in Atlantic City, and Robbie is up for the role. After multiple phone interviews for the position, our movie follows his mad dash road trip from Oklahoma to New Jersey for his final interview. Finances are tight, and he scheduled a wedding along the way just to pay for the trip. But his car breaks down halfway to the wedding, and he has to sing at a couple bars for tips to fix his ride. He winds up making it to the wedding just in time and on to the interview. And it's at this point where he winds up with the new job. He winds up having to come in as their computer system crashes and has to sing his way through the night in order to keep the station on the air. (laughs) Jeremy, you are in radio. Does such a job exist? Late night singer? (laughs) You know, late nights, overnights, those are crazy. Never know what you're going to get. You know of where you speak, being a DJ yourself, so I think that's hilarious. It's like, oh, that's old news. Nobody wants wedding singers. It's all about the DJ. I am available. Okay, well, I love me some John Lovitz, for sure. I would love to see a John Lovitz solo film. I just, I don't know how that's doable with John Lovitz in the state agent. Did he ever have his own movie? That's what I just realized. Has there ever been a John Lovitz vehicle? And I don't think he ever really got one except for High School High. That was the only one. 
That I think that was his big one. I mean, like he was a big part of City Slickers too, but he wasn't the main. main yeah, character. he's he's always a character that shows up, and I think right. that's his strong suit, which is kind of why I'm like, I don't know that I would follow him for a whole film. Mm, and right. honestly, with Jeremy's pitch, it sounds like UHF to me. There's uh-huh. a potential there <laughs> to have some UHF style gags, and I want to see that. So I got to vote for Jeremy. Oh boy. All right, Jeff. Say the 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 competition for adopted children concept does make me very uncomfortable. It's terrible. But it's supposed to. of children. Yeah, yeah. But it's almost it's that level of like how uncomfortable does it make me? <laughs> but yeah, overall, like with the not only the '90s references, but also I do I do like the, the game show aspect of it so i feel like there's something on the line so i would go with adam jeremy i i agree with adam's verdict on the john lovitz movie uh he's only tolerable in doses um so we have to go with adams here Wow. So how how can we flesh out Adam's movie here? So here's the question, number one, because I agree, and I don't know why I stuck with it, but the idea of a game show that exploits orphans is terrible. And obviously that's (laughs) the point, that the network would be so desperate, but then it's MTV, and it's like, is MTV going to let themselves be associated with something that terrible and make them look so greedy and uncaring? And so I wonder... Can we scoop out that section from my pitch and somehow take Jeremy's radio station trying to stay on the air and apply that instead? See, I feel like the MTV element, though, is key. It really is, isn't it? Because that's very 90s. And I kind of wonder if it's only heavy if you have a heavy movie. Is that if you make the movie a little, maybe even push it a little bit further into the slapstick, which yours kind of felt a little further into the slapstick than the love story. Because, like, I feel like the, you know, the tension of we can't have children, we want, you know, should we adopt? Like, that could go heavy, but I don't think we want it to. Hmm. What if we, rather than it being a radio station, maybe he's up for the MTV position? That could be something where, yeah, like, maybe he's been working at a rival and like fake music station for a long time that's been on the heels of vh1 like they have a joke we're not even vh1 and so they get desperate and they're the ones that force robbie to do the show trying to compete with mtv and then maybe we can do it that direction. So yeah, so it's not MTV. I love how we're we're really sensitive. We want to take care of MTV. We don't want to tarnish the reputation. Well, oh, come or, on. More precisely, we don't want to like lose our audience because they're like, come on, this is just unrealistic. You know, yeah. you gotta you gotta kind of walk that line a little bit. I feel like some of the conflict, and I don't remember if you said this in in, in the pitch, Adam, but like some of the conflict should be one of them. Like I would assume Robbie is the one that is willing to do the show, and then his wife is, like, very much against it. Right, and, and that that was what I originally had conceived, but it made me feel like Robbie was too evil. That's why I made it to where his job was on the line, and so, like, he's sort of forced into it, but he's not really in favor of it, and it's just because they're so desperate, and they just say, maybe we could do something good with this. Bringing in Jeremy's element, where it's kind of like, like, maybe that MTV did 
did promise him that he'd get to be a VJ or something like that. But it turns out all they really want is filler for like whatever space or something like that. And that's kind of what gives him his push into kind of like, a, okay, you know what? No, this is too far then. But I mean, are, but so are you saying MTV or are you saying the whatever station he's actually on, those executives would then, they're, they're, because like, I, I guess like what I'm saying is, are we going with the angle of he's trying to make the jump to MTV and maybe he gets promised that if he could, I guess, produce a decent show that gets ratings that they would then seriously consider him mm. so that even though it is doing well, then just because he doesn't agree with it by the end. And then maybe, you know, like you're saying, they give the job to somebody else or cause like, I don't know. See, I don't want him to be petty. I want it to be his choice. Yeah. That he's like, ah, this is this is wrong. Like we're doing it, but we shouldn't have. I guess what I and I, maybe I, I misunderstood that because then because my thought was more like somebody else came up with the show and they gave him the gig, but the caveat with the gig. So it's kind of like, and if you take this gig, then we will consider you for this position. But here's the caveat: the gig is horrible. Okay, well, and I guess maybe that could work. That actually might make more sense. Because, yeah, there's the job that he's jumping to that he's always wanted. And then he's leaving behind all the people at the other station that, again, just like when he left home to become, you know, some sort of banker or whatever he thought he was going to do in the investment world. So he's leaving behind all these goofballs at the old station that couldn't get it together, which is a whole other area where you could have some fun with casting people that are ridiculous. Yeah, and that's where I feel like using the adam sandler formula you gotta have the shooter mcgavin bad guy somewhere and so to have him be a like an executive like that seems like an easy bad guy to have like he's the cold calculating i don't care about these children sort of a thing like that and then even though like he's real smooth i mean especially if you get um what's his name shooter mcgavin like he can definitely play the smooth talking executive like what turns robbie is that he hears of him recorded saying i don't care about these children they can throw them in a dumpster if you want or whatever (laughs) very uhf yes just like they they got (laughs) but but no i like that that's good and then i think also what we could do again with jeremy's idea is that now that station's gonna go under so when robbie drops out of the show on the air maybe they switch the feed to some other show that was getting overlooked maybe on that network and so they pass the feed to them and then it's going out live on MTV but promoting this other station and so that's kind of like the triumphant thing and that's where they get Hootie and the Blowfish like somehow their tour bus gets redirected to that station you know and so maybe that's how they, they kind of have that it's like oh Hootie and the Blowfish are on Music Dump TV or whatever it's oh, called wow. the Music Pile I don't know <laughs> it's got to be like a, a terrible name which is why the station is not doing well you know but yes yeah, so I, I think that that actually works really well do you feel like jeff did we miss a 90s reference <laughs> i don't think so you <laughs> did as many as you possibly could <laughs> i mean when was uh you didn't the, the one thing that you didn't have was you didn't have or i didn't hear any reference to aol yeah, and I, I didn't I didn't know how to work it in, and that was like the Sarah girl who's the computer nerd was going to be all about Windows 95 and AOL and all those things, so that was definitely going to be part of it, but I just didn't see where it fit in the stories. I felt like, too, like, that was one of the things with The Wedding Singer, is that I, I don't know that 
the 80s references had to be story points. It could just literally be a one line, hey, are you coming with us tonight? No, I got to go home and check my AOL or something like that. Like that's all you need to throw in. Yeah. Or just the noise, just that modem noise, which yeah. only we, what are we, millennial, pre-millennial, whatever we are, we're the only ones that know what that noise means. <laughs> Gen X. Hey, I found our station name. It's the Box. Oh, okay. <laughs> Originally the Video Jukebox Network. So that existed. You want to use one that really existed then? Yeah, well, it's defunct since 2001, so I'm okay. sure you probably get the rights to it. Is that, yeah, but there's got to be some name that everybody calls it, like the Juke. Like, they refer to themselves as the Juke, and everybody's like, oh, you're watching the Puke? Oh, man. You know, like, something along those lines. So they're always getting dumped on. I was just trying to think of, like, what would their shows be, or what would their lineup, like, what are the videos they can get? I guess, like, Eastern European pop artists? Just ridiculous imitations of famous, you know, international superstars? But we need a villain, so you got that in there. So we got Shooter McGavin, just bring back Christopher McDonald as the executive. You know, they did that already with Happy Gilmore. Is there somebody else we could use in that same vein? Yeah, well, it always it feels like it has to be somebody outside of Sandler's crew, right? Mm. You, know, like you, you always bring in an outsider, you know, an actor who is not associated even necessarily with comedy to kind of play the heavy. So I was trying to think, you know, and again, I'm almost setting this in like the early 2000s, you know, because that's when the nostalgia would hit. So it's like saying like, what if we were making this in 2005? Mm. Who is the best jerk of 2005? <laughs> Maybe not a star on the rise because you, you don't, you don't want to have like a has-been in the role. This is right. more like an unknown but somebody who maybe had you know a strong run of supporting roles and so i was trying to think mm. of that era who you could get you know yeah. you know who actually it feels like he could have done a good job because you're kind of bringing him back ben stiller you know he was in happy gilmore you know he played a really good jerk in that movie he probably could summon a mm. different version you know of somebody you hate and uh, do it pretty well but i think he might make it to where he's like lovable hatred you know because you love to quote his lines for happy gilmore you will go to sleep or i will put you to sleep yeah you know like <laughs> he was so over the top and he was hilarious mm. hey what about th this is this might be a long shot but I i'm actually thinking of two cast members from next generation from star trek but brent spiner could probably do a pretty good job but what was that Maybe. boat trip movie he did with jack lemon and you know it was like oh i don't know he's a little over the top and I, don't get me wrong i love him but he's he's usually when he plays those kind of roles because think about like independence day he was over the top like well just but he, he, was, his... he wasn't playing the bad guy in that but what about jonathan frakes because he has the right level of i'm charming but I'm also not really as funny as I think I am. And, and I feel like he could, he could bring that to the role. Oh, and he could just... I can't not like. What about if we go if we go big? What if we go to a bigger name? What if we go like Bill Paxton? Oh, he'd be lovely, wouldn't he? Mm, see? Because like, like, and I don't know if you watched Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Like he did that did. sort of a, there oh, was yeah. a couple other things where he did both good guy and bad guy. Okay. What? Well, hey, Bill Paxton, why not? You know, because the, the only other person right. I was going to say, because he showed up, you know, in the, I guess you would say the lesser 
Adam Sandler films of his boom period. But when you had John Turturro, like in Mr. Deeds and stuff like that, because he could also do it pretty nicely, but he might want to take it too far. So what is the villain's role again? He's basically a suit? Yeah, he's, and he's got the show premise that he really thinks it's so exploitative, it will definitely get ratings, but nobody will take the job at his network so he goes to robbie and he you know he's aware of his work on the other network and he's mm. like we could get this guy to crash and burn with this show because it's so terrible you know he just hears through the grapevine that they want to adopt or something there's there, there'll be some maybe some character that passes between the two networks for some reason i'm glad i found this info on the box this sounds exactly like what we're needing it was eventually bought by mtv and then moved overseas as their MTV overseas, basically. But the request lines, they bought up a large block of Miami telephone numbers, and callers were charged for long-distance calls. Though, in order to gain revenue, the network switched the request line to a 1-900 toll number, with callers being charged $1.99 to $3.99 per call to make a request of up to three videos. They, wow, they cleaned house off of callers doing that. That sounds kind of up the alley for what we're doing. Just we can twist what the underhanded things that the network is doing. Because he's like, we'll do this show. Everybody will want to call. Even if they want to call to tell us we're terrible, they will make the call. And then we get the money. Yes. And then, like, they could do a whole thing. Yeah, so that, that's a good extra element to weave in there. Yeah, to make him extra dastardly. Peter, Peter Gallagher is another one of, like, like his stable, isn't he? No, no, he's not. Peter Gallagher, I mean, he's... He looks no. like one of his, his, he's got a, there's a look that Adam Sandler seems to go after. And Peter Gallagher has that look. He, you're right, though. And Peter Gallagher is like that one tier below. Like, he's not Chris Sarandon <laughs> level. Right. And I love him in The Man Who Knew Too Little with Bill Murray. So I think that could work, actually. Yes, let's go with that then, Jeff. Yeah. I think yeah. he fits just right. Peter Gallagher. <laughs> wonderful. Peter Gallagher. <laughs> and people are like, huh? Peter Gallagher? Oh, look him on. up. You'll well, like literally, <laughs> I found a list of people born in 1955, and so we're, <laughs> I'm just going down the list, and wow. we got we got Jeff Daniels, Christopher McDonald, Miguel Ferrer. Like these are the people that we look at. Well, because and now, it, because the interesting thing about thinking about someone like Miguel Ferrer, where it it would have to go the other way. You're not gonna believe he's good. He's a good guy. It was the same thing. Who else did I see on here? Michael Rooker from Guardians of the Galaxy. He, right. He's got to be bad and then turn good. He can't start good. You're never going to believe he's good. Right. But yeah, so and I, I feel like, yeah, as long as we got a decent villain, we're pretty set otherwise, because Sandler's going to bring in his buddies, and so that just fills out the cast right there. you got to fight, you know, Alan Covert's back and everybody else, so. All right, well, thanks everybody for joining us for this episode. We hope you uh, enjoyed it, and that we spun you round and round, like a record, right round. Um, anyway, <laughs> we had some fun, and we are going to be back next month, so stay tuned with a new episode. And until next time, you're the worst podcaster in the world, buddy. Sir, one more outburst out of you and I will strangle you with my microphone wire. We thank you for listening to this episode of Sequel Quest and invite you to continue the fake movie fun on social media. Submit your ideas for future episodes to SequelQuestPod at gmail.com or SQPod on Twitter. The films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. 
And he's uh, he, yeah. I, I didn't have this written down, so. <laughs> and then the, I don't know what Jeremy does. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.